0: Okay, so this is the third of our Faith at Work sessions. You've heard me give the introduction yeah. to the first one. Um, so let's just kind of rehearse the task we're doing because I think uh, I think that's important. Um, essentially, we're almost doing R and D uh, on this incredibly important question that's really bugged the church for two thousand years. Church hasn't really ever got great answers at it um, and it, it seems that uh, in many ways they're, they're in today's world not much further advanced um, we've kind of packaged the gospel up into a pretty narrow religious sphere and it's got its little patch it's allowed to play in in society but w- what is the role of faith in the public domain mm. and um, whilst uh, I think some wonderful theologians are opening the legitimacy of the space of the public domain up, in other words, creation theology, um, and led by Regent College and Tom Wright and people like that. That's great. That kind of theologically gives us licence to play. The methods uh, is the gap, and uh, I've long thought that it, it won't be the theologians, Ian Proven or... Tom Wright, that it's not their job to do the methods because they're in the academy. It's actually the reflective practitioners who are people like us, and we had Mark Scott last week, people who have got faith and somehow or other that faith has clearly influenced who they are in their public contributions. And and so the best way, I think, to advance this is, or one way, anyway, is um, conversations, which are Mm -hmm. sort of probing our experience and... uh, um we, we've also been i think illuminated a little bit in this journey by edwin judge because edwin when i asked edwin why did the gospel spread you know, from 100 people to take over the roman empire in three centuries his answer was we don't know that's his answer historically we don't know we can't account for it i mean we'd account for it by saying the holy spirit and, so on, but he said there's no historical record that can explain this. Uh, However, if the question is how did the gospel change society, there is historical record, we know, and that's what he studied. So the gospel did shape the ancient world, did reshape it, did challenge it, And, um, and I've personally found it illuminating to hear him talk about that. I think that one of the wisest things about faith at work I've heard uh, Mark Strom said was, "If you'd have asked the Apostle Paul, was he a social reformer, and did he have a agenda of social reform, he would have said no. But if you asked him, did he expect to have an, to have an influence, he would have said yes. But he just didn't know what it would be. So in a way, we're we're in the kind of modern version of that. Um, so Tony." Um, you and I began a long time ago. That's right, back in our school days. Yeah, we went to school together, Tony yeah. and I. Yeah. And uh, we we had a, a great time there, and um, it, doing some great things together. But primarily, um, meeting Jesus and mm. um, I. I had some influence on that you can tell your side of the story people here might be interested this was now half a century ago isn't it Tony? I hate to right, think, yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah right on 50 years ago yeah
0: my, I'll tell my side of the story okay, which is Tony really frustrated <laughs> me because Tony was an Anglican and I'd come from an open brethren background and I thought all Anglicans were nominal Christians right and so I was struggling mentally and I've probably told you this Have I told you this I, I think so, Tony. Yeah, and I, carry I, on. I was struggling with this: was Tony really born again or not? Um, <laughs> and um,
1: and I may not have been.
0: And you may not have been, but <laughs> but what happened on my side is interesting, yeah, yeah. which was uh, um, somehow or other, I it must have been the whole. I came to the the sort of opinion that I should embrace you as a kind of, as a Christian, as a brother, and talk to you out of that assumed relationship rather than some kind of adversarial one. So I don't know why. But that was the journey in my mind that was going on as we were talking about religious things, which led to a conversation on the train. Wasn't it on the train? Yeah. Going home from North Sydney to Roseville? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'd been
1: on a journey probably for about six months prior to then. Um, I'd started attending the... The local youth fellowship at the the local church that I'd um, been christened in and grown up in going to Sunday school there since I was very young. But um, at the age of 15, I'd started to have lots of questions about the direction of life and, uh, and although I was intellectually convinced that um, the Bible was true and and God was real. Uh, I didn't really have a personal relationship with Jesus, and um, and as best as I could see, there was a big decision to make as to whether I was really going to. I would have described it as commit myself to Him, and um, and I was wrestling with all of that. And and our friendship was uh, a very important part of my journey, Tony. And and this particular day, when we were going home on the train, you said something that really struck me. I don't know if you remember the specifics of the conversation, but you were talking about how much you loved God. Um, you were trying to explain to me your love for him. You, you said uh, in the hyperbolic way that we've seen and loved in you on many occasions, but you, you said I'd cut off my, uh, my right arm for him. Um, I love him so much. And, uh, and uh, you know, I understood what you were saying and, and I really knew that that wasn't something I could say. So that night I went home and um, got on my knees and uh, did business with God over the next hour or so, wrestled with a decision as to whether I was really going to give my heart to him and respond to what I could sense was uh, an invitation to experience his love and to to share my life with him, really what I would later come to describe as a marriage proposal where I said yes to him, mm-hmm. yes I will. So that was the start of a, um, a wonderful journey of relationship and love and, and look, it was very clear to me at the time that was the night I was born again and um, redeemed and as I've grown, I'm not so adamant that I didn't have a relationship with God before then. I, there was a measure of love and uh, a measure of even the experience of, of hearing the voice of God on one occasion. I can clearly remember when I was struggling with this question about why um, we don't have to have sacrifices these days like they did in the Old Testament and actually hearing God's voice. Mm. Um, with the answer to that it was because of what you know, Jesus is the Lamb of God. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Walking home from school one day, and then that, that was you know. So um, whether that was what exactly my relationship and standing with him before then was, I I'm less dogmatic about. But but that night was a night where mm. uh, there was a a whole change deep inside that has grown over the last fifty years.
0: Yeah. So so, so we were in year, what, 10 or 9, and that... So we were, what, 15, yeah. 15? When that conversation? Yeah, we, we were 15. 15. Yeah. So that then began a journey for us together, and uh, part of that journey we won't go into the details of, but definitely you were a candidate, in, in the mind of a lot of Anglican people, to definitely become a minister, because yeah. you had... Um, you were a leader, you did well at school, you had communication ability, it was there was a a clear trajectory that could have easily taken you into that world. Uh, You didn't. Uh, Would you like to just quickly take us through the journey of what you studied at university and afterwards and how you kind of began to follow, I think in your father's footsteps in a way, was it or not?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I expected um, from that day when I gave my heart to Jesus, my assumption, which was reinforced by... Other people in the world around me was that I would go into theological college. I'd become a minister. That was that was full time um, serving Jesus, and I wanted to I wanted to give him everything. So that was the um, the one clear path that people had counselled me to do. So finished school, went to More College, and uh, spoke about signing up. And the counsel I got was to go to university first to an arts degree, so um, took on the subjects that were going to lead to, to theological studies, Greek to understand the Bible, uh, Reformation history to understand the church, psychology to understand people, all the great tools to equip me for that. But um, yeah, a number of things happened in that three year period Tony, without going into all the detail but um, uh, with all the Zeal of youth, I probably burnt a few bridges in my relationships with um, some of my friends at Moore College, and um, uh, I found myself uh, having to leave three churches along the way <laughs> um, and uh, without going into all the detail of that, there was a
2: oh,
1: th- th- there was a. <laughs> There, there was a, a youthful zeal and a presumption that, um, that uh, I'm sure from God's side he had a, a big smile on his face because he could see passion and zeal and he said, I can work with that, even if you do make a few mistakes all the way. But, <laughs> but anyway, Moore College really wasn't an option by the time I'd finished my degree, so Why? Why? In, why? Well, in part because um, my worldview on a number of areas had changed... Um, uh, I mean, we might get bogged down if I go into too much detail here, but um, I I had moved in my thinking from sitting in an armchair reading theology books to being a disciple of Jesus in a practical sense. Um, Two things that really struck me, uh, a little verse in John three twenty-seven, where where... Um, It speaks about the need for for revelation. Uh, A man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. And a little verse in Mark 4.34 where it said, Jesus always spoke in um, parables, but when he was alone, he explained all things to his disciples. And it was a watershed moment for me at a a time in my life where I I went overboard in the way I applied it. I mean, we had a big... um, I don't know if you remember this, Tony. I think you were a reluctant observer, probably. But um, there's a bonfire at St Paul's College, just at the back of Moore College, and all of my theology books were put in that bonfire.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: I determined it was just going to be the Bible, and it was going to be uh, Revelation, and it was going to be spending time with Jesus and learning from him. Now. I won't elaborate on all of that, other than to say that's well, part Tony of the reason and I for... had a
0: very interesting background. We tried a lot of things.
2: <laughs>
1: I've got a photo of Tony with a sandwich board on the front lawn of City Uni.
0: Yeah. Anyway. We were not exactly nuanced communicators <laughs> in those days. So, so I... if we're against legalism and fundamentalism, it's because we've tried it.
2: <laughs>
0: but uh... trust us. But I, I was getting diverted from answering
1: you were. your question, Tony. I, yeah. I, um, not a, you're actually right on
0: track. Right on track.
1: <laughs> so I, I started... Uh, I enrolled in a Master's in Education. I was going to go into teaching. I thought that was hmm. probably the alternative route for me. Uh, but I was working part-time with my dad, who was an insurance broker here in the city, and um, enjoying that work. But uh, he, what, he, what
0: did you enjoy about it?
1: Oh, just... Um, uh, look, look. I, I think it was the satisfaction of seeing problems solved for people and getting some good insurance solutions for them. And, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad actually asked me to create a new system for him for placing insurance. It was a, a new way of doing things that actually creates something for him that, that uh, although I knew a whole lot less about insurance than he did... Um, I was able to create a system for him. So I enjoyed doing that, but um, he, he would have loved me to have <coughs> taken over his business, but uh, that wasn't what I felt was the right course for me. And besides, part of it was probably I felt I had to chart my own course in life rather than right. my father's. And uh, But he did introduce me to a, a, a very charismatic guy who worked in this exotic world that I'd never heard of called loss adjusting and he explained to me what that involved. It involved going into situations where uh, a disaster had happened or a fire had occurred or a storm or earthquake had hit and and, um, going in there and dealing with the claim that arose out of that. And he started to tell me a few stories about situations he'd been in and it was quite enticing. So uh, I had a job offer and I...
0: Lord, I'd do that, uh, and so it was kind of an accidental part of. The, there's a combination here. I mean, I, let's it was just...
1: providential, but it was was acc- it wasn't planned from my
0: yeah point of view. yeah. It's it's. I think this is quite important. Um, I I think one of the th- sort of theories we need to develop is the theory of what I call sandpits. Hmm. Um, what I mean is, so if we say okay, God's interested in the cosmos and the redemption of the cosmos. Mm. Um, and that's the total domain of you know available human enterprise, really. Mm. Uh, however, me being one person, I'm not going to play everywhere. Mm. So part of life, I think, is discovering the sandpit, um, mm. the domain of influence that I can play in, and that's why I'm asking these questions because I think one mm. of the indicators is kind of, of often it's it's stuff like love, mm-hmm. uh, you know intrigue, like doing it. Mm. Uh, often, you know, I think there's sometimes a parental or there's an influence of, and, mm. and then there's some kind of providential mm. situation that opens up and yeah. and uh, you find yourself in a, in a sandpit. And yours mm. was this quite esoteric world that I suppose most of us have never heard of, of loss adjusting, uh, yeah. your, and um, that you then wandered into and you didn't know much about it at the time either. No. No. It's almost the most... It always strikes me as the most intellectual side yeah. of... Um, insurance?
1: Um, Well, it
0: can be. It can be, and uh, it's certainly... Tony, Tony, you're too humble. I mean, you've got to... Market yourself, to you, Tony. i was just giving you a line to say, put yourself at the top of the tree. But it... Tony was always lovely, humble, and understated, whereas I'm a marketing guy. I... Burn some books. <laughs>
1: I I should say that I have subsequently gone out and repurchased a number of those books. <laughs>
0: so,
1: Not all of them, but some of them. And, so and I've uh... and
0: Tony gave me a gift, didn't you, Tony? I did. You want to tell them what the gift was? Yeah, it it, it was something to do with Calvin,
2: wasn't
0: it? It actually helped your recent research? It did, yeah. yeah. All of my recent research was done on Tony's gift for me, which is he gave me a complete copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, both volumes, which I never looked at until I read recently (laughs) to destroy his doctrine of predestination. (laughs) So, um, anyway, it was a great gift, Tony. I'm glad you gave it to me. <laughs> but, um, so, so you wanted into this... I suppose where, where the conversation's going to go from now on is pretty intriguing because, as, you, as you've implied, there are kind of professions that are semi-holy, like mm. you could get away with it. Teaching's definitely one of them, mm. you know. <laughs> um, Anything to do with medicine is sort of possibly okay, but now you're in the dark side, financial services, and insurance, right? And and so, the idea of where God is in this is really intriguing. Yeah. Now, if we kind of fast forward, I guess what we're we're looking at this area of how we how we might contribute through three lenses, one of which is the world view. Yeah. So you, for a long time, did not have a world view that this was any place God would be interested in.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, let me just nuance it a little. I certainly wouldn't have seen it as the dark side.
0: No, uh, I I saw I know I saw you didn't, a... but I mean... I'm yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It, you know, the the world of insurance was a very useful world for, for the world to operate.
0: You don't have a great public image, Tony,
1: insurance No, industry, absolutely. So. Absolutely not. Um, which is... Which is quite unfair, actually, because I could we- take you through countless situations that I've now been involved in over the last 40 years where people's lives have been put back together on oh, a no. massive scale.
0: Exactly.
1: And, look, the industry doesn't always get it right and uh, there are problems in it, but uh, overwhelmingly it, it provides a, a service that is absolutely critical to a sophisticated... Oh, economy. we're going to come to that. Yeah. We're going to come yeah. to that.
0: So, uh, But I want you to sort of walk us through the sacred-secular sort of split world. Yeah, right?
1: yeah. Well, it would be fair to say that um, I didn't see my work in insurance as of great spiritual significance yep. or of something that um, God himself would have valued as an end in itself. Right. And, uh, and the real work of ministry was done outside of my work in insurance. Yep. Um, so, so it, that, it, it was done in the Bible studies and the prayer meetings and the evangelism. and yeah.
0: yeah, so without being facetious, I think this is important. This is the kind of sacred, secular yeah. split that a lot of us kind yeah. of live in, yeah. and you're in that world without, without feeling that in, in, your, in your work life you were being traitorous or anything, but it wasn't mainstream ministry. Um, no, well, not, it wasn't in itself ministry. It was an environment
1: in which I could... Uh, be a Christian and, you know, I certainly did all I could to um, be a faithful Christian in the workplace and, uh, in fact, I, you know, I I would wear a a Jesus Saves badge on my suit with a bright red and yellow Jesus Saves, which frustrated the people I worked with. They said, I wish he wouldn't wear that badge. He does a great job, so we've got to keep him, but I wish... So, (laughs) So, so, you know, but, but I wanted... I wanted to be um, faithful as a servant of God in that place and I and I absolutely got that the way you did your work, um, you had to do it faithfully, you had to do it ethically um, and there were some real challenges in doing that in an environment where, particularly uh, where you're negotiating outcomes that many people will be a little bit... Um, uh, how can I put it euphemistically they, they won't necessarily speak the truth yep. in a transparent way so you know there were all the struggles about how to, to live as a Christian in that environment which, which I endeavoured to do faithfully and I endeavoured to be an evangelist but what I didn't get probably for a couple of decades was that God actually created me to worship him in the work I was doing and that he actually wanted to take delight in partnering with me and me partnering with him. In the work? In the work itself. so this and, is a, it, and the work itself was as much an act of worship of God as the Bible study or putting on the worship tape.
0: Great. So this is really important because I think you've made a really important distinction here. I think you know, a lot of faith at work... Paradigms would have had you doing a good job for that, those first 20 years. You were, um, you actually, we'll we'll get to this in a moment, you were were getting increasingly significant in your positions, but you still had your Jesus Saves badge, so you were evangelising to the best of your ability.
1: Yeah, I became less confrontational in my evangelism and a little bit more wise in the way you communicate effectively, so the Mm. Jesus Saves badge didn't last for too many
0: years. Okay, 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 got rid of the Jesus Saves badge, you got, got a bit more. Clever about it, Um, but also the ethical side of business you were very watchful for. Um, So that kind of ticks the traditional boxes, but as you said, uh, what you didn't have was a sense that the actual work itself was co-working with God in the mission of God, and and that work was therefore worship. So what you've done is you've redefined work as worship. You've started Mm -hmm. to use, but you weren't there yet. So what happened and how did your paradigm shift? to begin to say, no, this actually is where I am, God saying this is where I am?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think it was a... Um, in a sense, it was a gradual thing, although there were a couple of aha moments that were quite significant. Um, but... Uh, look, I... I... I had just... Um, ..taken a decision to step out of a CEO role of of the company that I was Mm -hmm. um, a part of for for 20 years. And, um, I mean, interestingly, just along the way, Tony, I'd I'd resigned after seven years because I uh, was frustrated that I hadn't really um, found my calling in life, that, you know, if I was going to follow God fully, then spending all those hours at work was a compromise so I, I resigned, didn't know what I was going to do, felt a bit like mm-hmm. Abraham when he was called to leave Ur of the Chaldees and, mm-hmm. and just left. And, and I spent nine months um, waiting to see what the next step was, expecting some sort of revelation from God as to what I should be doing. I spent some time teaching scripture in schools. I spent some time just doing some volunteer work in the community. Um, but the only thing that I felt right about doing was um, some part-time consulting and loss adjusting and giving advice to the firm that I'd left and another firm as well so I started to do that and and, uh, and a few years later they uh, made me an offer to buy out my business which was a bit, um, bit bold to ask them to do that since my business was what they were giving me anyway but they, they took me back as a, as a full-time employee and a, and a few years after that I was um, put into the role of CEO of that firm and uh, and after a, a season in that role and I, I really uh, loved the opportunity to do that because I could sense that this was a, a new opportunity for me to to practice what I would have described as servant leadership in the model of leadership that Jesus had, uh, had shown us and it, and it wasn't such a a common term in those days, the concept of servant leadership um, but uh, but I wanted to to do that, but it was really when I stepped out of that role after a season and the, there's a, a story around that that um, that is uh, is one that uh, I could spend a bit of time sharing but um, probably to cut a long story short I One had a three-year-old son who was asked where his dad was and he pointed to the telephone. Um, And I thought, you know, for this season of life, jumping on a plane all the time to go to to New York was not a great thing when you you had uh, young kids. Um, I had a couple of people reporting to me who felt very affronted that I'd been appointed over them into the role because they felt they were more entitled to it than I was. You were younger than them? Uh, younger and, and, and not on the same rung of the uh, hierarchical ladder when I was asked to take on the role. The, the shareholders of the company thought I had the right mix of gifts to take on that role at a, a time when the company was going through a very tumultuous phase and uh, threatening to, um, to dismantle with people leaving and forming other companies. So I think they felt that I was probably the right person to to pull it together, and um, and so there was a, a part of me that became excited by the possibility of saying to one of these guys, who was probably the, the right one of, of a couple who would have wanted the job, to say, well, look, uh, you've not given me the support that, that I would have loved to have had in this role, but why don't you take the job, I'll report to you, and uh, I'll give you the support that I would have loved to have had, you know, a bit like... Philippians too and uh, I got excited yeah. by
0: that thought this, this is a quite an interesting story uh, this mm-hmm. was the biggest loss of company in the country it was, got, yeah. it was a sizable company yeah. so you're a young person you've got the role essentially there's professional jealousy from some jealousy and 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 but you then decided having taken the company or through its tough time and re and got it on its feet that you would demote yourself or step aside and promote one of these people who'd been sort of not really supporting you?
1: Yeah, and, and there was another factor at work too. Um, the company was growing. It was getting... Uh, the, the management responsibilities were getting more and more onerous. I continued to love the professional side of the business and and kept my foot in that, that side of it as well as the, uh, the management side. And uh, the... The global CEO to whom I was reporting basically said, "Look, you've got to make a decision here. You can't, you can't uh, do both of these." And um, and a part of me really wanted to to maintain that professional side. So so all three things hung together, and and it was really that process of saying, "Well, this is where my gifting really is on the professional side." Actually, going into the coalface, helping people who had faced these disasters that that they've faced and helping them to recover from that loss that was where my real gifting and calling was and it was a, a revelation that came out of that willingness to to leave that role.
0: Yeah, you had to be prepared to give up status and all uh, that you near know, the hierarchy of leadership for something that you felt loved and called and yeah which I think yeah. is another. I think that's actually another one of the ingredients that we're kind of searching for in this uh, contribution in the public sphere, which is this sense of calling. yeah, um, yeah And calling that is not calling. I mean, what you've done... Uh, so, and you know, I, I'd say that's the work of the Holy Spirit, as you said, Philippians yes. 2, that it is not a big thing for us to lower ourselves. It's not particularly... In the world, it's, a, it's, a, it's astonishing to do what you did, but it's not astonishing... With the world view that he who runs the universe, did this, and um, and that uh, you know he had a position for you somewhere else. Oh,
1: look! It was a it was a win-win-win for me on three counts. One, I got to see more of my kids. Yep. Um, two, I had the joy of helping this guy be really successful, which he was for the next seven years that he was in the role. Mm-hmm. And um, three, I got to. Focus on my area of passion, which was the professional side of the business. Yeah, and it, it was a, it was around that time. Um, look, I can't remember exactly, but I think you so to see Tony in one of our conversations, and uh, you know we would occasionally intersect and um, and have a chat about things. And I, I, as best as I can recall, it was um, a reframing of my understanding of Ephesians two10 We were. We were talking about that little verse where it says, "You know, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, mm-hmm. uh, which God has prepared from before for us to do." And and I'd always read Ephesians 2:10 in the context of Ephesians 8 and 9, where Ephesians 2:8 and 9, where Paul's talking about how. Um, We're saved by saved by grace,
0: by grace through faith,
1: and it's not of works in verse nine. Not not of works. So you know the great Reformation position that we're saved, not by good works or, i.e., ethical um, behavior, but rather faith in the finished work of Jesus. And and so when it comes to to verse ten, I'm thinking of good works in the sense of ethical behavior, and. you planted a seed, I believe, which fell in good soil and grew into a, a, a whole fresh understanding of what that verse was actually talking about. How, I mean, it's, the counterpoint is that we are God's handiwork, we're, we're God's workmanship. God has created something so amazing and so wonderful. And we are called to reflect that same creative genius and um and that that helped to reframe my whole understanding of life and work as, as one part of that reflection of the creative genius of
0: god i can remember at that time or about that time you got this i love what you said was you were speculating on the new heaven and the new earth yeah, yeah. future eschaton and you said oh, i might get to run a planet remember that yeah. conversation yeah, yeah I, I i do remember that it just yeah.
1: Because, look, our calling is so amazing, isn't it? We're, we're called to share the throne with Jesus. Yeah. And uh, and all that's happening here, everything that's happening here, is getting us ready for that calling. And we'll learn lessons in different contexts. Um, but it's one of my favourite stories, Tony. I, there's so many in the Bible that are my favourite stories. but But I love the story of Joseph and and how God had called Joseph from a young man to, um, to an eventual job that he would have to do, which would be to uh, take a leadership role in Egypt. You know, God cared about the Egyptians and God cared about the nations around Egypt and they were going to be faced with a crisis and, and he was going to be God's man for that time and God had given him the gifts that he would need uh, to think strategically, to to administer well, to come up with a great plan to to solve a, a massive problem, and and to have the um, the prescience to know what was needed, and and to act accordingly. And God had called him for that. He says in in Psalm 105:19, and until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Until the time that that calling was going to be fulfilled. God's word tried as in refined and brought the gold out of him. And uh, he had a journey to go along the way and um, part of that journey involved ending up as a slave in Potiphar's house. And I just love what happened there, you know. It, it says um, the Lord was with Joseph and he blessed him and all of a sudden the blessing of God poured out from Joseph into Potiphar's house. And there's Potiphar, so he sees this young foreigner as, as a gifted man and puts him in charge of everything. And, and, uh, and everything in Potiphar's house prospered and, and in his fields so they prospered. And you know, he was, he was learning in that context. It was a, a role he could have resented, being a slave in a foreign place. But God was with him, and out of it. It's obvious he loved the Lord, just the way he responded to some of the challenges, you know, even the challenge from Potiphar's wife that that showed his love of God, his faithfulness to to God and to and to his master, that he wouldn't um, succumb to her advances and and he was he was learning, he was being prepared in that role again in the prison. It was the same story in another context, even more challenging but God was preparing him until the time 13 or so years later from that original prophetic dream uh, when he was there in in Egypt in that um, massively significant role. But even that was just getting him ready for his eternal calling.
0: Yeah, so there's kind of succession of pre- preparations for Absolutely. this... Fi- you know, sharing the kingship yeah, of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, Now, so that's great. And now you had a worldview that said... God is in this place that I'm in, that I love, of insurance. And and you're in this world of loss-adjusting, loss-assessing. Most of us here wouldn't have a clue what you do. Um, Can you just talk through this esoteric world? Just give us a story of one of the kind of big... Like, how long does a project last? What do you actually do?
1: Okay. well, look at every situation that I get involved in has unique features about it, Tony, but... But, look, one that I'm dealing with at the moment, we're in the final stages, probably, of a a large, successful Australian manufacturer up in Queensland. Uh, They had a fire in March this year that uh, destroyed the factory, destroyed all of their manufacturing equipment. They have got a lot of robotic equipment that um, they were using that helped to keep them competitive... Uh, in a world where a lot of Australian manu- manufacturers just aren 't um, but they their business was devastated they well, I was in there uh, a day after the fire. I had other colleagues who went up there the day of the fire, but the the owner of the business was sort of wandering around not quite knowing what to do but um, but what what I and my colleagues did was just to to sit down, work out a strategy for dealing with that situation. There was a business to be protected. There were alternative um, options that had to be explored as to how we could get them up and running on a temporary basis until... Because there were long lead times involved in getting new equipment. Um, but I I said... There's a woman who was a CEO, and I, I said to her, uh, look, this is really tough for you, and, um, you know, it's it's looking pretty difficult at the moment and it is going to be challenging over the next few months but uh, the good thing is you've got an insurance policy here which is going to do some great things for you and uh, you're going to look back over this in a couple of years time and you're going to say this was the best thing that ever happened to us Um, because our job is going to be to find the silver lining in this cloud for you and and they're now in the final stages of uh, getting... The, the building's all been rebuilt. The, there's new equipment coming in now. It'll be finished next month. But they're in the final stages of, of not only recovering what they'd lost, but more than that, what she now sees is they're set up for the next 20 years. There's been an opportunity to re-engineer processes. There's been an opportunity to, to replace... Equipment that has now been had been superseded by new technology, with equipment that's really going to take them to another level of their business, and uh, and it's all been paid for by insurance and uh, a little bit of contribution, which has been far outweighed by the value of the investment of that little bit of contribution from the from the business. So, we're, so
0: yeah, we're going to return to that. But what yeah. what I now would like you to explain is. What, what, what you have seen in that story and what you do is actually a redemptive mission. It, it, it is. I mean, one of the things that,
1: that occurred to me at the time of my worldview being reframed around my work is... Um, ..I saw that what I was doing was helping people recover from loss, which was very close to the heart of God in the gospel. I mean, he, he is about recovering purpose and meaning and destiny and, and all of those things. But but uh, when you go to someone who's devastated by tragic circumstances where all the things that they've worked for over all those years are you know, just dissipating into, into a pile of ashes, um, you know that recovery can come about if you... Take the right actions, and you've got the right support. And you know, I usually have great support in the form of an insurance policy that we can make to work in ways that will be really helpful. So it is redemption, and and um, and I I'd always love that story of uh, David um, at Ziklag, uh, one Samuel twenty nine and thirty, where. One of the lowest points in David's life, he'd, he'd suffered this calamitous loss. He'd um, gone out with the Philistine kings against Israel, or he'd started to before they sent him back, and came back to, to the place where he'd been staying at Ziklag, and all the wives and children of his men and David's, they'd all been taken by the Amalekites, a marauding troop of Amalekites that had come through. And uh, it was a devastating loss. Without going into the story, um, that little phrase, David recovered everything. And uh, it was just such an exciting story to read. But the thing I always loved about that story, Tony, and and it took me a little longer to discover the significance of it, was that David did actually more than just recovered what he'd lost. It, It Actually, as you read on in Chapter 30, he had the spoils of battle that were on top of what he'd lost that gave him the means to send gifts to all the people in Israel who had secretly supported him. And he, in fact, got more than what he'd lost, which is a a principle that God works to in in redemption. He doesn't just get back what we messed up, but somehow in the whole process creates more.
0: So so what I love about your story, Tony, is that In this area, that this sandpit you'd played in for a long time, once you got the licence to see this is God's domain, and you recognise the core mission of this whole industry is recovery of loss, Mm. and it's almost these, of all the human systems we know of, it's among the the most that systematises the recovery of loss. And and we human beings are, in a sense, following in God's footsteps in trying to recover loss. Um, And so I just thought that was fantastic you kind of reframed the the whole way that you spoke and thought about your work. Mm. Then in the story you just told us, what I noticed in the story was actually rather similar to what Mark Scott said. You spoke hope into that situation and and, and, I presume Mm. that people are devastated at the beginning and uh, think this is the end of the world and you were able to speak hope into the situation. I think that's a great rule we could follow yeah. almost everywhere That we're, yeah. we, because we are the ones of all people who should be equipped for hope yeah. yeah, and to believe that hope and recovery is part of the way God's designed the absolutely. universe. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but w- let's just push on with this because n- now that you're in that space, you're mm. actually playing... You're actually pursuing this idea of hope further, right? And, and what... What's interesting is you've almost gone beyond recovery into resurrection in a way, because I mean, the, the ultimate death, it's almost like for God to restore things, sometimes he needs to, the, the de- you know, there's a death before mm. arising. Um, and, and you made a really interesting, broad comment to me about New Zealand and Christchurch, which is almost a, a macro example of this same principle at work. Mm. Um, we'll get onto that in a moment, but... The point where I think what you're talking about is quite mind-bending is that this is the part that Ian Proven began talking to us about when he began to talk about the problem of evil. I don't know for those who were there, and he talked about evil that's a result of sin, Mm. um, which traditionally we've thought of as what we're fighting against. But as far as Ian was definitely concerned, there's kind of, evil, as in ungovernable forces, in creation before sin. And an Mm -hmm. example is an earthquake. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ian said, that's just life kind of thing, and this is one of the mysteries of pre-sin situations. So Ian Mm -hmm. was definitely not seeing there's anything in the Bible that says earthquakes are the result of Adam's fall. Mm So, I mean, he's got the mind to think about that. But anyway, what's interesting to me is this is actually the area that you're more often than not playing in. Yeah. Um, and I, it's entangled with evil, but Christchurch was not like fraud, um, criminality. It was a, a natural disaster. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: and look, I don't have a simplistic answer or a clear theology around all of that. What I do know is that Um, in a situation like Christchurch, you never would have wanted the people of Christchurch to have to go through what they did, and lives were lost, which is a tragedy in itself. Um, But what you can also say is that on one level, without in any way diminishing what I've just said, uh, the economy of New Zealand has been greatly assisted by that event. It's been a massive invisible export for the New Zealand economy as billions of dollars from overseas reinsurers has flowed into the New Zealand economy. Uh, you'll see in a decade's time looking back a very different looking Christchurch that has the benefit of billions of dollars worth of investment in it. And more broadly, a New Zealand economy that has done well over recent years for several reasons, but one of them has been this capital inflow. So um, out of a tragedy has come some very positive things. And I say that without in any way insensitively diminishing the challenges along the way and the heartache for, for people. I, I mean, I lost one of my good friends in the, in the earthquake in Christchurch who uh, was over there dealing with an assessment from an earlier one and, and lost his life in, in Christchurch in February of 2010. So, I, you know, without diminishing any of that, you can see uh, the, the uh, seeds of Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God. And God takes situations and actually brings good stuff out of them.
0: Yeah, so that, like you, I don't think... It's hard to wrap a kind of a theology around it, but your experience, practically speaking, as it, as Ian, Ian was saying, we've got a God himself who works with these dynamics. And yeah. um, So if we say we're co-workers with God
2: mm.
0: in the cosmos, then I think we're invited to say we're co-workers with God in this kind of... For the, within this era, managing the ups and downs of yeah. a creation that's um, got dynamic forces that will yeah. bring bring um, bring uh, challenge and loss into it. Yeah, yeah. But but the principle the principle is the end game continues to be growth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can keep declaring that. We don't know how, we don't know the why's or the wherefores, but that's a enormously strong principle in yeah. in that the gospel gives you. Without the gospel, I don't know yeah. how you'd get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and look, you can't unscramble an omelette. There is, you know, if I'm mixing metaphors here a little bit, but, you, you know, um, things get broken, things get damaged and you can't necessarily go back and recreate what was there originally. But God's skill is to take that situation and produce something even better. I mean, we were chatting about that little example of the little story of the, um, the Persian rug... Oh, yeah. tell
0: this is a really good story can you tell this story because I think this does this story frames a lot of how you approach things yeah there, there was this guy who
1: was a master in creating Persian carpets you know the intricate designs that you'd, um, you'd, you'd tie the knots by hand and, and create the designs through that process and he had students that he was teaching how to do this and, and uh, when his students would come to him and say look we've made a mistake here, we've tied the the wrong knots here, Uh, his great skill was that he could look at it and rather than attempting to untie those mistakes, he would say, "Okay, well, that's that's where we're at. Let's see what we can do with that. And he would create an even better design, incorporating the mistake in it, and you'd look at... What the final outcome was and say that what, that was even more wonderful that 's even more beautiful that 's even better than the original design and I think that's you know that 's a a principle which reflects god 's skill now we we mess up individually we, we come across situations where stuff has happened and the temptation is to think well you've got to retrace all those steps and go back to there and and try and make it good again um, god doesn't work like that i mean there, there are some times where some things have to be put right but but generally speaking he takes us where we are and even in his grace uses some of the experiences that we should never have had
0: to actually bring something good in our lives yes this is very powerful because we're kind of feeling into a what we're feeling away from is the perfectionist picture of god you know the God is the perfectionist, static if anything goes wrong, he gets freaked and 's got to put it back and slap mm. us into you know that that kind of headmaster perfectionist view, mm. which i think I think in our psychology, all of us would know that perfectionism ruins many lives um, it, it, it's no good if you 're in sport it's no good if you're in, um it's no good if you 're in business it's no good if you're in family life it's a curse for many of us, mm. and unfortunately, the gospels often i think uh, privately colluded with a perfectionist worldview, but but mm. what you're saying here, and that story, and in your experience, is that God is much more the kind of creative extemporizer who's going to work with and keep keep his his will is relentless mm. to the end, but yeah. he's it's, he's going to be taking lots of twists and turns with us. Yeah. Tony, yeah.
2: Can I throw an idea at this point, but like it to Sure, please. good. I don't need to do a guy called um, um, Conway Morris. Is his surname. No. Uh, he works in a, a, a liberal arts university in America. He's written a book called Random Design and Microbiologists. This is a university that's a really fundamentalist board and really fundamentalist. And so, but he's actually written a whole book about you cannot get purpose in creation without randomness. Mm. And, that's, that, and that's another illustration of exactly what you're talking about. God that nice. Himself, mm. in actually creating, requires randomness in the process to actually get the incredible. Uh, the incredible construction, the intricacy of order. And at the microbiological level, you cannot do it without the chaos, without the randomness.
0: Yeah.
2: It blows my mind, but that's what yeah. he's actually put out in his book. And I haven't seen anybody else take it up much. But it's such a So what's his name again? Uh, Conway Morris is his surname.
0: Conway, uh, Conway Morris. Morris.
2: I'm pretty sure it's him, but I'll, I'll send you the reference. I'll yeah, if well, you, you could,
0: because I think word. that's it's, it's interesting yeah, for yeah, us yeah, to... Yeah. Hmm. To sort of get a footnote. Mm. well, I think it's more than the footnote because I mean, I in our world in Second Road, um, I mean, I was just talking to the guys then from Accenture, explaining that disordering is actually part of the creative process. If things mm. are too orderly, you can't get anywhere. Um, you've got to break things up, and um, uh, which is the same principle mm. that that, and, and and if we want to be co-workers with God, then. What we have to observe is what's God doing and how does God work because we're following in his footsteps. I think the difference is if we have these sorts of awarenesses, we get wise in how we might more deliberately work with him and interpret an event. Um, I think... uh, So that's that's fantastic, Tony. I mean, um, I I think that... uh, I'd like to just kind of... um, Round off with um, some of the um, some of the skills that you developed out of your liberal arts degree. Um, this is this is a kind of a, I suppose, an interesting little way to finish because part of the faith at work debate, I think, um, is the role of the liberal arts in in a, in, a, in a national education system. Yeah. And um, in which, as you know, I'm a major advocate. Yeah. advocate. Uh, the, the, the hidden story around the liberal arts. So there's two debates. One is that the liberal arts, are use, it's useful to study English and history and philosophy. Mm. And, 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 I, and I always say theology should be included in,
2: mm.
0: in philosophy. Um, these are good things to study. Um, because they're about, what does it mean to be a human being on the planet? I mean, if you read War and Peace or you study history, it's human enterprise on the planet. Um, and so there's, there's a debate to be had that this is a useful thing to do versus, yes. particularly in Australia, we have a very, very pragmatic, almost anti-intellectual mm. society that says, you know, do a commerce degree or a management degree or an accountancy degree so you can get a job. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's one debate. Uh, But then the second debate, is, which is a more hidden one, is that, and I'm not asking you to comment on this, this is more a way of framing what what we're going to investigate next, there is a very strong case that the liberal arts came from the early church fathers, that the whole liberal arts was impossible without the church. And Whereas there's a very modern secularisation of the liberal arts. I've got a whole book on the liberal arts by a series of business professors, and they go straight back to the Greeks. They just leapfrog right across two thousand years of history. They miss Saint Augustine. They miss all the great church fathers who said, "Well, man's made in the image of God." You know, if there was never that declaration that human, human beings were made in the image of God, you would never yeah. have had the modern liberal arts tradition. So it's it's got a religious heritage that it's losing. Now I know that uh, today, if people want to become in into, into your, your profession of loss of assessing and loss adjusting, there would in a sense be a technical route for that. Yes, yes. and um, and you have let's just finish by looking at how you've contributed because I think your contribution's gone into the legacy stage. you have helped structure the entire profession and you've but you think your your greatest and people you know without wanting to embarrass you called you you know the the doyon of lo- loss assessing in our generation words to that effect um, you have uh, you've institutionalized it, but I think you think your greatest contribution was you created an educational stream, rather like the chartered accountancy stream. Well, I was part of that, yeah. Part of that. Yeah,
1: look, um, just coming back to your earlier point about the... uh, The liberal arts. The liberal liberal arts. um, After I started in loss adjusting, I recognised that I needed some technical knowledge to have credibility. If I was really going to uh, advance in that profession and do the job as as credibly and as well as I could. Um, so I gave up the, um, the education Master's in Education and I, simultaneously with doing a full-time job, took on a, um, an economics degree and accounting law majors, got my uh, accounting qualifications, loss adjusting exams, insurance exams, did all of that technical stuff uh, to get all the qualifications that I needed. But the most valuable underpinning to me was what I picked up through doing that at arts degree and um, I'm grateful to Moore College for telling me to go and do that because it was a great gift to me to to do that. I um, you know, did the English literature as well and, uh, and history and did a few of those other subjects on the way through and it was the uh, the thinking skills, the analytical skills, the even the um, the higher-level philosophical thought processes that were developed through that. Uh, and, of course, the, the writing skills, the communication skills more generally, but very specifically the, the ability to write clearly, to think clearly, all of those things um, are of greater value to me than all of the technical stuff I did subsequently. So, immensely valuable, Tony. I, yeah. I would... You know, I tend to encourage people to, to get that foundation um, before they start focusing too much on some of the more technical areas that they might go into.
0: Yes, I mean, you've got examples in your book which you wrote on, uh, say, lateral thinking, mm. um, using both sides of your brain, um, that's what you advocate, um, teamwork, empathy. These are very much creative skills. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've got an example here about the crane um, and the you know, lateral thinking around the the twelve million dollars. What a, a large crane crash or something at a container port where you yeah. had to think laterally around that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All, all those skills come out of out of that background and and I love to bring T. S. Eliot and four quartets into some of the training I do as well. So. <laughs> How do you do that, Tony? Oh well, you know. You know, four quartets, one of his one of his great phrases or one of his great quotes, because um, I, I'm helping people to think about a hypothetical future. When you look at business interruption, part of the whole assessment process we go through is, what would this business have achieved over, you know, a two-year period if they hadn't had an interruption?
0: Which is an imaginative exercise, you That's don't right, know. That's
1: Yeah, and um, uh, you know what. Did T.S. Eliot say, uh, What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation? So, you know, you.
0: That's, That's a lovely of... phrase. <laughs> <laughs>
1: To, to bring some of the philosophical insights of the great poets or something like well, that? Well, look, I think it's,
0: a... it's very important because, as I say, theology is philosophy. And I think anyone who yeah. really gets into the Gospels starts getting immediately into the nature of reality, yeah. immediately into metaphysics, immediately yeah. into making arguments. I mean, yeah. and, and I, think, I think one of the practicalities of a Christian upbringing is yeah. that you become an advocate for these things. And yeah, then yeah. a liberal arts background is a, yeah. a natural partnership in that.
1: And you know what
0: Keith said about. Beauty
1: is truth. Truth is beauty. And whilst I might query whether that is all you need to know on earth, and it, it's nonetheless it, it brings a whole dimension into, yes.
0: into the world. Of and, and you view yourself. I mean, when it, when you talk to me about the the feeling you got to have when you're walking into a situation that's a total mess like this fire, yeah. you, you just you, you, to, to me you you talk like a designer, a creative. I mean, just. Talk about that feeling when you walk... You said adrenaline and, you know, you're walking into the...
1: Well, part of you knows that someone is devastated and they're uh, without hope or they're perhaps desperately looking for hope and you're going in there as someone who has seen these situations before on many occasions and uh, you know that there's going to be challenges and every situation will have its own unique set of challenges and and the insurance support that they've got is not always the ideal contract that's been put together by people who have had to do it without necessarily the, the full set of skills that they should have had, but nonetheless you know that um, there's going to be a, every possibility of a great outcome, so it's, it's, it's actually a great privilege, Tony, to... Mm to
0: take people through that journey Mm. and it's to me that's that is a uh a really what what you're talking about there that we're sub creators you know we're continuing the creative work of god and yeah i mean if you took genesis 1 verse 2 Yeah, yeah um i was talking to the accenture guys today and i said there's two great definitions of design and her uh, Herb Simon's one from the Sciences of the Artificial, but Genesis one verse two, which is probably the best of all. You know, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon mm. the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the, uh, uh, over the situation, and out of it came order, which is really what you're talking mm. about. There's mm. chaos, and then you you are creating order, beauty. Uh, truth, because yeah. it, it can't be... It, you've got to work in constraints. You can't yeah. do... Yeah. You've got the insurance policy, yeah. you can't move beyond it. But that—that yeah. that is the vocation. I think we all have one way or another as sub-creators who are reordering the earth yeah. in some sandpit. Yeah.
1: Can I just finish with one little story? Yeah, you um, do that and then we'll... And, and wrap it up. I, oh. I had the the privilege many years ago as a 20-year-old to go to India to to Singh. Hmm. You, know, you remember Buck Singh? He yep. was uh, one of the great... Um, evangelists and church planters in India. He had planted over 2,000 churches and uh, led countless thousands of people to Jesus and great man of God. And I had the the opportunity to spend a couple of months with him on this occasion and And uh, it was really great to go there and see stuff that he was doing and to, to be able to tag along with him to, to different places. We'd gone to this little village one night and he was having a... A relatively small meeting in this village but you know a whole lot of people had come along and, and um, he'd preached a great message and just afterwards I'd walked out of the building and uh, I needed to find the amenities such as they were in Indian village but uh, on the way past I, I went past an open doorway to an, a room that was next to where we'd been having this meeting and I just got a glimpse of a, of a sight in there it was so sort of like uh, a picture that you know it takes a second to, to take a picture but the the image lingers and um, and this picture was so powerful that I got it was a picture of a little old lady sitting cross-legged before a fire um, with a cooking pot and uh, and I, I instantly recognized what was happening um, she was cooking a meal that was going to be brought in to Bucksing and myself and a few other people who were part of the party. And uh, she was a, a woman who was clearly very poor and illiterate. You could just tell that by her look and dress and everything else. And uh, it was as if um, the Holy Spirit spoke to me very powerfully and clearly, uh, you know, with a, an inner voice that was unmistakable. And And part of that message sort of unpacked itself over the next um, little while but it was as if he was saying to me look Tony you've, you've come here to India to to learn some things from Buck Singh and, and you've got a lot to learn from him some great things to learn from him but nothing you learn from him will be more important than what you're going to learn from this lady and uh, you need to understand she is preparing a meal for you guys she's not not going to be bringing it in she's not going to get any Um, prominence out of what she's done. She's not going to get any thanks overtly for what she's done. Uh, As far as she's concerned, none of you guys will even know that she's done it. But what she's doing is no less significant than anything that Buxing is doing. And her inheritance is no less than his inheritance. And um, her reward is no less than his reward. Because what she's doing is she's doing out of love for me and she's serving me out of love. Yeah. And she's doing what she's called to do. And, and that made such an impact on me, just reflecting on that, that um, to use your analogy, we, we're in different sandpits and God gives us different gifts and different callings. But to do what we do with all of our hearts, because it's a heart thing that God's after... Uh, and and that has flowed through in more recent years to my understanding of my work. He's he's after a heart. He's after a heart that does it as under him, and he takes delight in that, just as he took delight in that woman.
0: Yes, and uh, that's a lovely story, and it's a good one to finish on because I think this theory of the sand pits is quite important because God is not interested in scale. Ah. And scale cannot impress God. Um, it's uh, you know, <laughs> just not going to work. Yeah. Um, I don't think he notices the difference between the woman and Obama as an example. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, you know, like from where God is, like yeah. he can hardly tell the difference. But yeah. but faithfulness yeah. in the sandpit is what he notices. That's all that matters to him. And doing and, it out of love. And for out him. of love for him. Yeah. And um, which goes down to I think a, a wonderful point that came out of Ron. Some the talk that you gave us on ZimZoom that I've. Thought of ever since that, and we'll close with this comment. But in apprehending God, uh, on the scale of volume and space and time, there's a vast difference between us. Um, but on the scale of love, love doesn't have a scale, mm. it, it, it mm. doesn't have big and small bits of it, you know, mm. um, it, it can't be multiplied. Mm. It's just its own purity. Mm. And that that love can be expressed in a tiny, apparently insignificant corner of the earth or it can be expressed cosmically that doesn't change the quality yeah. of the love, yeah. Yeah. which is where God plays. Well, thank you very much, Tony, for your you. life, actually, uh, and time. And I um, uh, I just trust that it's been illuminating for others to share how your understated life but with a lot of uh, great achievements has found and and discovered the discovery of God in this area of human enterprise uh, right at the heart of it. It took you a long time to get there perhaps and and now you I love what you said now now you're really starting to learn Um, but uh, I think it's without wanting to sound too facetious well if you can do that in insurance and loss adjusting then there's got to be no limits to where we can find God at work. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Danny.
2: Thank you. Thank you.